I want you to go to Mark chapter 8. And if you've got a Bible this morning, I want you to uh, uh, keep a marker there. And um, I'm going to pray for us in just a second. And I want you to, to uh, get ready to, to flip around a little bit because um, I, I want to show you some things Mark's doing this morning. And I don't want you to miss it. And and I want you to hang with me. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask the Lord to give us an attention span so we can dial in this morning for a few minutes to what God is saying. And I want to show you how Jesus so clearly demonstrates with incredible gentleness why it is that he came. And what it is he came to do for you and for me and uh, for, for the world. And so, and, and I don't want us to miss it this morning. And so, we got a lot to cover in Mark. But before we get there, I want to set it up and show you what, what Jesus is doing from Isaiah. And then we'll go back to Mark. And then we're going to finish, God willing, if he doesn't come back before the end, uh, Revela- a little bit of snippet in Revelation 5 and see if we can't bring it all together this morning. So, Uh, If you would, bow with me. Father, uh, help us this morning. We want to see so clearly. You're going to, you've preserved your son Jesus asking uh, 18 questions of his disciples in Mark chapter 8. And uh, Father, in many ways, we're we're the, the recipient, we're the object of those questions this morning. The most important of which, as Tom reminded us this morning, who who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? And so, Father, I pray you'd help us to clearly see that. And to do that, Father, we we pray this. We, We appeal to you. We come to the throne to you this morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, so if you've got a thumb marker in Mark chapter 8, which is essentially where I think the scriptures I have on the screen this morning, but it'll be a minute before we get there. Um, I'm going back to Isaiah chapter 35, all right? Jesus is going to, in uh, the passage at the end of Mark 7 and into Mark 8, he is going to refer to two chapters in Isaiah, or uh, play out, uh, two chapters in Isaiah. The first of those is Isaiah chapter 35. So, at the end of Mark 7, we see that Jesus is uh, going to heal a man who is deaf and mute. Then in Mark 8, he's going to heal a man who's blind. He's Going to, at the end of Mark 7, he goes into a place, Tyre and Sidon. This is uh, Lebanon. And then he's going to go from there to the Decapolis. So, Gentile area, Decapolis, Gentile area. So, so he's, he's going to be in the surrounding nations around Israel before he comes back into Israel and he'll ask his disciples, who do you say? That I am. And, and what he is doing 
is kind of a first fruit, a foreshadow. Uh, Here's a taste of what is to come in the future. That future is this glorious time depicted in Isaiah chapter 35. You've got 34 chapters, essentially, of of judgment being proclaimed. And then in Isaiah 35, it says this. So just follow along with me. I'll, I'll put it all together for us in a minute. It says this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. And rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. The the nations around, the the nations, all the world essentially, they're all going to see the glory of God. And and in verse 3 of Isaiah 35, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer, tongue of the mute sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And it all ends there in verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord shall return to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be on their heads. They'll obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's this time depicted when the servant, the the one who is to come that Isaiah has been telling his his audience about say he, he, he's going to come, and, and when he comes, he'll restore all things. And not just all things for Israel. We find out in Isaiah 30, he's 35, he's going to restore all things for everybody. It'll be a time of joy and singing and rejoicing and gladness. And it's this time they long for. Well, Isaiah is going to go on a couple of chapters, and then in verse Chapter 40, he'll start introducing this servant and begin to describe the servant and what life will be like under this servant that comes, this one to rule. But in Isaiah 53, and Jesus is also going to mention this in this chapter we see today. In Isaiah 53, so 35, 53, you can flip those to help you remember it. After he's talked about the servant to come, he will say in Isaiah 53, I'll just start in verse 1, I'll read a little bit for you, um, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up from uh, before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one whom men hide their faces and was despised and we esteemed not. If you skip down to verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter. 
Like a sheep that was before his shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53, it's one of those that if you've ever been here on a Good Friday service, you know, before we celebrate the, the glory of Easter morning and the resurrection, we, we oftentimes look on that Good Friday service at Isaiah 53. That Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the lamb who was slain. Isaiah 35 is this picture of a glory to come. But before the glory to come, the servant, Isaiah tells us, is going to have to suffer. And why he suffers is because God was pleased to take all of our sin and all of our guilt and lay it on him. And because he does that, when he'll rise again, then we enter into joy with him. Isaiah 35 can be our future because of Isaiah 53. All right, you with me so far? Now, go back over to Mark and let me show you how Jesus is putting all of this together for his disciples. He, he really, he, he wants his disciples to already know this. He wants them to be connecting these dots, but they haven't been able to connect the dots. And so, it's, um, <clears throat> it's like after-school tutoring that's going to happen here, all right? He's got to get them ready. And uh, I told you last week we, we saved the Syrophoenician woman at the end of chapter 7 to this morning and that I was going to answer all your questions. Um, that's only partly true. But look at this, chapter 7, verse 24. I don't have it on the screen, so it's all bonus material if you're here and you have a Bible. Um, if you don't, you'll know next week I'll bring a Bible or I'll download one on my phone. But Isaiah, or Matthew, or sorry, Mark 7, 24. We've got to get through this quick, all right? Of course, it's my birthday. I can do anything I want. All right. Mark 7, 24. You just, just, you're going to figure out, I, I, you're going to leave here and go, that guy's the biggest nerd I have ever seen in my life. You're right, I am. Um, 20, 7, 24. And from there he arose. So, so it, remember, he, he, you know, so Mark 7, the, the traditions, the commandments, he has the, the deal with the Pharisees and the uh, scribes. And um, so, so he, in verse 24, he arises and he goes away from that region. He leaves this Galilee area and he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which interestingly enough is the Lebanon that Isaiah 35 was talking about. And he'll travel 80 miles, maybe 100 miles, several days travel to get there. And he's, and he's going there to get away from it. He's been trying to get away. And it says he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he, he could not be hidden. Not at this point. Immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, so far so good. We've seen things like this happen. People coming to Jesus. 
Except we're, we're curious because this woman in this Tyre and Sidon area, she's outside of the, this holy land. She, she's not a Jew, she's a Gentile. And we find that out in verse 26. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast out the demon of her daughter. Now, from there, you think you know how the story's going to go. I mean, we've seen Jesus in these encounters before. And in his compassion, he heals. And whether he speaks a word and it happens, or he travels to a place and, and has a, a physical encounter with the person to be healed, we see that, that healing takes place. We, we expect, verse 27, to say to us, and, and Jesus went with the woman, or uh, Jesus said, you know, go in peace. Your, your daughter's been healed. But Jesus is making a point to his disciples. What I came to do, I came to do for Israel for the benefit of the whole world. But what I have to do, I have to do in Israel. What I have to do, I have to do for the Jews. What I have to do, I have to do for God's people for the benefit of the whole world. That goes all the way back to the promise in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. That's what I have to do. And to do that, that means they're my focus because they're the ones that will ultimately hand me over to death. Now, Jesus knows this. He's been wanting his disciples to know it, but he's going to make this abundantly more clear. And so he says to this woman, that's the Gentile in the area that the future promise of Isaiah 35 is. And um, he says to her, little children, let the little children be fed first. For it's not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, you read that. And you wonder, okay, did someone get in there and mess with Mark's text? Because it looks like Jesus just called this Gentile woman a dog. So you think, well, surely that means something else. So you pull up your Bible app or you go to blueletterbible.com or you even Google it, all right? And what you find out is it's not really dog. It's little dog. Which doesn't make it any better, right? Jesus calls her a dog. Now, here's what I want you to see. Jesus isn't being offensive, and we know this because she is not offended. Verse 28, she answers him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This statement, he says in 29, you may go on your way. The demons left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. You find out from the other accounts of this, Jesus commends this woman for her faith. She has faith. Here's, here's the point of the story, that the woman understood what the disciples did not that God's grace was coming. It was coming through Jesus. And that grace was coming in a surplus. That grace was not in deficit. It wasn't just, here's a little here, here's a little there. 
It's a grace that is being poured out. It has um, a, a sufficiency. It is a, it is a grace that's overflowing and overflowing out of those whom Jesus came to and the rest of the world. And she understood it. A surplus of grace. And here enters a character the most unlikely in Mark's gospel to be able to hear what he's saying, but she does. Martin Luther loved this passage. He said, she took God at his word and was treated as a precious child. There is a superabundance when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the grace of God, no one is out of the gospel's reach. And in that, you have this first fruits of Isaiah 35. Well, he's going to do even more. He's going to go from there, that Gentile area, to another Gentile area. He's going to heal a man who's deaf, very physically, very, very tactile, you know, very tactile. He, you know, he's going to put his fingers in his ears to, to help the deaf man know, hey, I'm, I'm going to fix your ears, these. In verse 34 of chapter 7, and then we're getting on, he says, he, he looked up to heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Ephathra, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Tells him, don't tell anybody, but he goes and tells everybody. In Isaiah 35, the first fruits are happening. The blind will see, the deaf will hear. It's coming, he's coming. The joy, the rejoicing, the gladness is within reach. Verse 37, they were astonished. He's done all things well, which is a very Old Testament praise of God himself. He does all things well. Well, so in chapter 8, they're still in the Decapolis in this Gentile area. Jesus has been teaching, been teaching. We find out um, in, in, in verse 2 of chapter 8, uh, it says, I, I have compassion on this crowd that I've been teaching to because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. He's been teaching them three days. They've got nothing to eat. If I, if I send them away hungry, they'll probably collapse or faint on the way. Verse 4, and his disciples answered him. How can anyone feed these people with bread here in this desolate place. And all of a sudden, we're meant by this contrast of the faith of this Syrophoenician woman and the faith of the man who was healed uh, from being deaf and being mute all of a sudden. And, and by the way, that Jesus has already fed 5,000 people. Here are 4,000 people. And the disciples essentially in verse 4 say, Jesus, that's really great if you want to feed everybody, but how in the world, who in the world could feed all these people? And you begin to wonder about the disciples, don't you? Wait a minute. That's not what you're supposed to say. 
I mean, if we were teaching this over here, if we went over here to the second graders and, um, you know, say you volunteered this morning, Jesse inspired you, you decide you're going to sign up and volunteer, first week you got the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. If you put feeding of the 5,000 flannel graph upon the deal, which I don't think we use flannel graph, but we should. And you explain to the kids, listen, there's 5,000 people. This is impossible. Um, you know, 5,000 men, which means there's more. And it's only five loaves and two fish. And Jesus feeds everybody. And then Jesus does some more things. And he gets to another crowd, and there's 4,000, and those people are hungry. What do you think's going to happen? There's not a second grader over there that wouldn't tell you. Oh, well, Jesus is going to feed them. The disciples, they hadn't gone to Sunday school, I guess. They didn't have you teaching them about who God is. And so they didn't understand. They were seeing life as a deficit. They were looking at all the things that they did not have. Well, Jesus goes through and he, he the healing or the, the miracle of, the, of the, the, the seven loaves in this case goes just like the miracle with the 5,000. And then in verse 11, I want you to see the Pharisees, they come up to him after he leaves that area, goes back to the Galilee area. Uh, the Pharisees come up, they begin to argue with him. They're seeking a sign from heaven to test him. Now listen, Jesus always responds to the faith of people. He never responds to the testing. But we want to test you. We want to see if you're real. And in a sense, Jesus says, haven't you read the first seven and a half chapters? You know what I can do. In Matthew's account, he points him to Jonah. I'm not going to give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah which is a reference to his death and burial and resurrection. Why does the generation seek a sign? It's another question Jesus will ask. In verse 14 through 21, Jesus is going to ask a series of seven questions to the disciples Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Mark is setting you up for the panic once again of the disciples. Well, we forgot the leftovers. We look around, and we only have one piece of bread, and the implication is, what will we do? We'll probably starve if that's all we have. Jesus takes the minute, and he said, listen, I want to talk about this. I'm going to ask you a question of why are you discussing that you have no bread? Don't you understand anything yet? But before I do that, let me warn you about the Pharisees and Herod. Let me warn you about the leaven. Let me warn you about that little thing that gets in and that grows in your life. The leaven of the Pharisees, which is a self-righteousness, or the leaven of Herod and and the world, which, which is a worldliness. Let me warn you about those things. Because when you are focusing on what you do not have, that leaven enters in, and you begin to try to supplement what you do not have in your own strength. 
whether it's self-righteousness, whether it's the things the world have. And so he's going to ask him all these questions. Verse 17, why are you talking about not having bread? Don't you perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Don't you remember? I I broke the, we did 5,000 people. How much was there left? We just did 4,000 people. How much was there that was left? In verse 21, he says, don't you yet understand? Do you not yet understand? Now, that sets us up for the most unique miracle that Jesus is about to do in all the Scriptures. Mark's the only one that records it, by the way. In Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, this is what it says. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man, or, and so he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. He, he's taking him away. Now, he's not going to do it in the village, not going to do it in front of a crowd. He's taking him away, and the only, the, only those that go with him are the disciples. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, remember, Jesus has just had a conversation with his disciples. Seven questions, eight questions, depending on how you count it. Ending with, don't you understand? Don't you see? You've been with me. You've, you've, You've heard me teach and you've seen me do these miracles. Don't you understand what I'm doing? Don't you understand who I am? And then he takes this blind man, takes him out of his village for only the disciples, and he wants the disciples to see the answer to the question he just asked. Do you understand? Jesus wants them to know, no, you do not understand. And he uses the healing of this man as a living parable to show the disciples exactly what kind of condition they're in. Look at what it says In verse 23, he says, do you not understand? Then verse 24, and the man, the blind man who's being healed, looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. In other words, I see, but I don't really see clearly. I I see, I I mean, I can see enough to keep myself from from bumping into a tree, but I'm not sure if that's a tree or if that's a person. I can see, but I can't see clearly. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he says to the man, don't enter into the village. 
It's not time yet for everybody to know the things I'm doing. Now, when you understand what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples in the healing of the blind man, oh, I mean, some will say, well, listen, maybe Jesus wasn't, you know, strong enough. He had a long couple of days. He was tired. He was low on power. And it took him two runs at it to get the guy. Of course it didn't. That's not the point. The point is he wants his disciples to know, hey, listen, you've been hanging around me long enough that you you think you see. In fact, you, you see a little bit, but it is not clear at all. You don't understand what you're looking at. You see men, you think they're trees. You, you, you can see, you, well, you see more. You're not blind anymore, but man, you can't, you're, you're not healed. I'll tell you, the, the, the application for the time in the world we live in, the place in the world that we live If I were to say there was one thing that ails so many people in our neighborhoods, our zip codes, it would be be people who see but do not see. It would be people that know enough about Jesus to say, you know what, I see, but they can't distinguish people from trees. They don't know who Jesus really is. They don't know what Jesus came to do. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning. And you see, but you don't see clearly. Maybe you think, listen, Jesus is, I mean, I know he's good. I mean, of course he's good. I want to be on team Jesus. Who wouldn't want to be there? I mean, I went to camp. I had an experience. I, I, I felt, you know, I, I had all the feels. I, 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 I like the music. I, I mean, Jesus is good. I'm for Jesus. And so you're not completely blind, but you don't fully see. See, because when you walk out of here this morning, what you'll see is all the things you don't have. you'll, You'll begin to see all the deficit in life. And your solution to that deficit is, well, I must try harder to be more religious. Or I must, must try harder to get the things of the world. The problems I have, the deficits that I have can be made up for money that I earn or significance that I gain or some status that I achieve, or a relation. You, you'll begin to look at these things I don't have. That, that'll be your focus. Your solution will be either, hey, listen, I'm going to be more religious and get God's attention, or I'm going to go after the things that I know will satisfy me, but ultimately you know they don't. But your response is not. Hey, I've only got one piece of bread. But you know what? That's okay. I know Jesus feeds multitudes. He has a grace that's overflowing. He has a grace that's super abundant, that overflows to everything. I have no need 
that I cannot trust him for. And the chief of those is the needs of my heart, the needs of what's going on in my soul, the needs of, of, of eternity for me. That when you lay down at night, you lay down in peace, knowing who he is and what he's done. I don't miss this. Jesus is doing something so gentle and careful with these disciples. I mean, listen, praise the Lord. I wasn't leading these disciples. We'd have been back there with the 4,000. Well, no, nobody can. I'd have been like, you're fired. All you guys are fired. I'm so sick of you. I mean, you're fired without any severance pay. But he doesn't. It's easy this morning to go, you know, I listen to this and I'm, I, I'm worse than the disciples, right? I have such a hard time trusting like that. Or feel so wrapped up. Feels like that leaven's got a hold of me in one way or the other. And it's all right, Jesus is so gentle. Look at what he does just after that, where he's trying to tell the disciples, you see what you don't see. It says in verse 31, or no, 27, don't miss it. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, all the way up north. If you were going to go to a place, the Garden of the Gods, the, the Walmart of Gods, Pan is worshipped there. Baal is worshipped there. All the fertility gods are worshipped there. I mean, it is a, is a raunchy place. For the, I mean, I promise you, Jesus didn't get a permission slip from the disciples' parents to take them there. This is where he takes them. To the place where there is a pantheon of gods. Every god in, that you can imagine can be worshipped. He takes them there. He says, on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Have you come to that place where you, you've been confronted that, with that question from Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Not your parents, not your grandparents. Not even necessarily your church. Who do you say? Have you answered that question? Well, Peter will speak up. And in verse 29, he answered him and said, You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. And it's the high water mark so far. Peter's life. You're the Christ. 
You're the Messiah. You're the one the Old Testament told us to wait for, and we've been waiting, and here you are. Jesus says, listen, you guys don't tell anybody yet. The reason he says that, you find out, is because you, you've got the right answer. You have no idea what the answer means. They think, Messiah, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. That means, oh, man, you're coming in glory, you're coming in power, you're coming to conquer everything. Our troubles are forgotten memories at this point. So Jesus has to turn and correct them, and look at verse 31. And he began to teach them how the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And here you have Jesus telling them about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 35 is coming, but it doesn't happen until Isaiah 53 gets here. It's the turning point here in Mark. They're on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus is now going to head south. He's going to take them straight to Jerusalem where all these things are going to happen. And in the next two chapters, Jesus will tell them three times, when we get to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried, convicted, beaten. I'm going to be nailed to a cross. I'm going to die the shame of a cursed man on a cross. I'm going to lay in a grave for three days, and then I'm going to rise again. Three times he's going to tell them. The first time's in response to Peter saying, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, okay, just so we're clear what the Messiah means, the Son of Man is going to suffer. Three times he's going to tell them this. you would think the disciples would be like, okay, that's pretty good. Let me take some notes on that. Jesus tells them again, and they'd be like, man, this is coming to life. Every time you tell us, I, I understand more. And finally, by the third time, it, it's just as clear as a bell. They're saying it with him. That's not what happens. Three times, there's three responses, and the three responses are absolutely telling. We'll, we'll close you down with this. In verse 32, Peter says to him, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your eyes or your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. No, no, Jesus, you're not going to suffer. Suffering's no good. We don't want suffering, Jesus. You're thinking about it all wrong. And what Jesus is doing is revealing that Peter has his own agenda for Jesus. You know what that leaven looks like that gets in? One of it looks like you have your own agenda for Jesus. Nope, Jesus is not where I want to go. This is not what I had planned. This is not part of the program. It's your own agenda. The next time... Jesus tells them in chapter 9, 
They, they didn't understand it. They were afraid to ask him. Instead, they started up another, another conversation. Jesus turned and said, hey, what are y'all talking about? He said, oh, nothing. And then Mark says, the reason they said that was because they were talking about which one of them is going to be the greatest. And part of that leaven looked like pride. Finally, in chapter 10, Jesus will tell them again, and the response is James and John run to Jesus and say, hey, yeah, 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 all the crucifixion, resurrection stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. But can one of us sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory? What's in it for us? The Son of Man's got to suffer. He calls you to give your life away. Follow him. And then he ends the, the whole bit, verse 38, tells him that this, he's the son of man. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, for him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his father with the holy angels. The son of man's going to come to suffer. He did come to suffer. And then the Son of Man's going to come in glory. And He will come in glory. You either embrace Jesus as the one who suffered on your behalf, the one who took your place to die for your sin, and the one that calls you to follow him, which means follow him in faith. Not because he'll satisfy your agenda, not because he's do, he'll do something to stroke your ego or your pride, not something, not following him be, because of what you get from him now. But Jesus bids you to follow him. And all the places he would take you, which means there will be sorrow, there might be suffering, but that you'd follow him. In Revelation 5, you don't have to turn there, but I'll give you a picture of what Jesus is talking about. John's caught up in a vision with Jesus. And the end is about to be proclaimed. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, set, sealed with seven seals. God's holding a scroll, and the scroll is the end of things. It's the, it's, the, it's the last chapter. It's, it's the last bit to come. It's the end of the story. I saw a strong angel proclaim with loud words, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one on heaven, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. John says, I began to weep. And he begins to weep because, man, if the last chapter can't ever be told, we're stuck in this forever. 
And one of the elders said to him, said to me, weep no more. Hey, John, don't, don't, stop crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And the picture is, he's sitting there, he's weeping. The end's not going to come. Nobody can open the last chapter. We're stuck in this forever. And, and, and the angel says, hey, don't worry about it. Hey, look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So John looks up, turns, and it says, In between the throne and the four living creatures, and amongst the elders, here's what I saw. I saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain. Hey, John, look, it's the lion. The fierce, ferocious lion who's come, who's coming in, in glory to capture everything, to, to bring justice to his enemies. John looks and turns, and he sees the lamb. But Jesus is saying, listen, when that day comes, and it comes, and the last chapter's written and the end of the story comes and Jesus returns, you will look and you will behold him one of two ways. You will either see him as the lion who has come to judge. He'll come in all the glory of God and he will come to judge. But I will tell you, if you see him as the lion, you will be the object of his judgment. Or, on that day when he comes, what you will see is you will see the lamb who was slain. You will behold him as the lamb, as John the Baptist announced, behold the lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. If you live a life pursuing all of your glory now, everything you can get now, what you will see is you will see the one who has come in the real glory. Jesus wants his disciples to know, look, if you'll see me as the one who's come to suffer for you, the one to give you life, I'm the lamb, the son of man, the lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks you. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning you'd help us. Heal ears that can't hear but need to hear. Father, eyes that can't see but, but need to see. Father, would you touch us with your word this morning so that we'd hear clearly, we'd see clearly your son. Father, would you help us to examine? Do we see Jesus only partly and, and, and 
Or do we see him clearly? Do we see Jesus as someone that we need to impress or someone that, that is going to make all our, our wishes come true or someone that needs to... It, that we can co-opt for our own agenda, that, that Father, in the, in the reality, we're here for us. And we want Jesus to do what, what we want him to do. Well, Father, do we see so clearly that we'd be willing to say, you know what? I'll give up everything. I, I set everything else aside to follow him. But the way to gain life is to, to lose it, to Set all my self-interest aside and focus on the one, the Lamb, the Son of Man, who came to suffer on my behalf, calls me to follow him. Father, we want to follow him. We want to, we want to do that. We want to see clearly. Help us this morning. And so we ask this the only way we can. The name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.